So as I was praying about what to share, um, I, the Lord put on my heart Acts chapter 15. So we can start kind of heading our way there, and we're going to spend the morning in Acts chapter 15. And um, in addition to kind of reading through the yearly Bible plan that the, the church has kind of been doing um, at, at home with our family devos, um, we've been going through the book of Acts, which has been a huge blessing to me. Um, it's great to see in the season in which we're at as a church, I would encourage you, if you have a heart for the body of Christ, <clears throat> for Calvary Chapel Miami, I, I would encourage you to be familiar with the book of Acts. I think both in the blessings that come with it and in the challenges that come with it, it's always great to see when there's a great work that God is doing, uh, to be familiar with, you know, the work that God did in the early church, especially kind of where I see us at right now. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of vitality. Um, and there's always a lot of opposition, you know, from the enemy. Um, and so uh, it's a good book to be familiar with. And when I went through it, um, uh, it really ministered to me. There's two things happening in Acts chapter 15. There's one main teaching, and that's the one that we're going to kind of cover. But towards the end, there's also another application that the Lord spoke to me through this chapter, which I'm primarily is the reason why I wanted to share it with you. And so that, that's kind of my, but wait, there's more statement. If you're hearing the teaching and thinking, well, I don't think this is for me. There's something at the end that maybe might be for you. But um, also kind of, you know, in going through this passage, uh, uh, you know, I, I was really blessed. And I think, that, I think that both parts are really necessary for us as a church. Um, up to this point, the, the body of Christ, the church, went through a lot of uh, challenges and difficulties and hardships. They went through a lot of persecution. Um, people from the government, people from the religious system uh, of the Jews were persecuting the church and attacking them. But this here constitutes one of the most dangerous attacks so far. It's coming from within, and it, it, it threatens to undermine everything, to unravel everything. Because it's an attack against the truth of what it is that they believed and what their salvation was based on. And so that's kind of the introduction to this chapter. <clears throat> Up to this point where, <clears throat> excuse me, Up to, I, my voice was fine for the first service. So up to this point, um, uh, we're the church in Antioch. The church has spread from uh, Jerusalem as the persecution happened, people moved to other parts of Judea and churches started there. And then they moved from there to Samaria. They moved from there to Antioch. And now it's spreading um, to the Gentiles um, from Antioch, which is in Syria, there by the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And um, this church has been a church that Paul and Barnabas have been preaching at and teaching at for a very long time. One of the things that struck me from going through the book of Acts this time around is I never realized how long he spent time in Antioch and how awesome it would be to have as your like home pastor or one of the assistant pastors be Paul and Barnabas. You know, that's amazing. And here he's been ministering to them for a long time. He's been preaching the word. In Acts chapter 13, as the elders were gathered together praying, the Lord put on their heart to send out from among them Paul and Barnabas to do a work of the Lord. So they pray and they lay their hands on them and they send them out. And they start this first missionary journey to go through um, the, the surrounding region, which would be kind of like you think of the area of Greece and Cyprus. And, and they go through this area of uh, Lystra and Derbe. If you turn to the back of your Bible, <clears throat> you should have a map there somewhere that says the first uh, missionary journey of Paul. And he went to these churches. 
And he ministered Christ to them. He told them about the, the beautiful, incredible gospel message that you saved through faith in Jesus. Speaking in large measure to Gentiles that come from a pagan background and telling them how they, God desired for them to be saved. And all they had to do was just give their lives to the Lord, surrender to him, put their faith in him. And then uh, an attack comes uh, of, of people who are now saying, wait a minute, you're saying that people are saved just because they put their faith in Jesus? No, no, no. They got to follow all the rules that are in the Old Testament to the letter, or they're not really saved. And that's a big challenge. We see that that's where we're at here. That, that uh, opposition kind of started from the Jewish synagogues in these Gentile regions. And now it's followed him to Antioch, but it's coming from Judea. These men from Judea come up to give this message. And you see there, uh, it says, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved and custom is a usage prescribed by law. This is just the way that we've always done it. And, but the key word that you want to see there in verse 1 is the last word. It says saved. Unless you're circumcised and you keep the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And that's rough. That's, I think, the whole challenge for Paul. If they had said, listen, unless you're circumcised uh, and you keep the custom of Moses, you can't be holy, that's worth a conversation. Let's sit down and talk about that. But if you're saying that you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved, that's a, that's a whole statement altogether, a different statement altogether. And, and these are what people, we would call them legalists. Now, a legalist is someone who takes the word of God and then adds to the word of God. So you got someone that says, well, if the Bible says that you have to do such and such to be saved, then if you do such and such, and such and such and such and such and such and such, you'd be double saved. Extra saved, extra safe in your savedness. And you think, well, that's not, where does the Bible, if God's happy with you doing this, then what if you did that three times? Well, that's not what the Bible says. And so then they would come with these burdens to lay on people. There's a very, uh, one thing that a legalist can't stand, there's very few things that they can't stand more than a joy-filled Christian. So here you have this flourishing, vibrant body of Christ. They're so, you know, they're so in love with Jesus, and they're growing in the Lord, and, and they're spreading. The ministry's taking place, and they say, hold on a second, hold on a second. Are you guys circumcised? You know, and, and, now, <laughs> and, and so they're, they're, they're trying to lay this burden on them. And I love um, the next verse because it says, therefore... When Paul, had no, uh, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. First of all, this is quite the contention. It would be no small thing for them to say Paul and Barnabas had a dissension with them or for him to say he had a dispute with them. Either one of those in the Greek, those are really strong words. Uh, you know, this is a big, all-out, raised voice discussion, you know, fight, arguing, <laughs> argument going on. It, but he doesn't say it was a dissension. He doesn't say it was a dispute. It was a great dissension and a great dis dispute. They're there putting up a, 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 a strong resistance against this. The word there, dissension, it means that they were taking both. It's the word that you get uh, the word standing from. You're taking a stand for something. So these, both of these groups were taking a strong stance for something. 
It's the word that you would get for taking big, strong stances on the matter, a popular uprising, a controversy, an insurrection, a rebellion. And I wonder if there are things that we take strong stances on. There's also a temptation that maybe there's difficulties or challenges or oppositions, and we just, we don't take a strong stand on anything. And we can become a pushover. Or we can just become the victims of whatever wind and wave of doctrine that come into our lives. It's true of the church. There needs to be a commitment to take a strong stand on important matters. And that's true of our lives and our homes. It's a constant challenge to me. Am I taking a strong enough stance on things? And something that I, you know, have to repent of and make sure I'm taking a strong stand in the Lord and not in my flesh. And so they took a strong stand on this. The word dispute means a mutual questioning, a disputation, discussion, reasoning from the word for to seek and to examine something together. It's such a strong description that I, I, kind, I, I feel like I can hear the arguments. You know, you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. What are you talking about? Jesus never said anything about that. Jesus said that you have to believe in him and be saved. And, and if you're going to lay that burden on people, this is just going to, if they would have, if the Pharisees would have succeeded in this, it would have killed the work of God. It would have laid such a heavy burden on people that there would have been no joy, no excitement, no realization of what it is that God had done for them. So this is an important matter. This is an important issue. What is the foundation of our salvation? This is not to say that it's not a, listen, sin's not a big deal. I'm not saying that. We ought to be conforming ourselves into the image of Christ. Sin should be something that we repent of, and holiness should be very important to us as believers. But our salvation is not based upon anything that we do. It's based upon what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And, and, and if our, the foundation of our salvation is based on anything else, then we're le- laying a burden upon ourselves that the Lord hasn't borne upon us. And it's going to lead to have long-term consequences. So as they go back and forth with this discussion, I'm blessed with how the resolution of it is. They say, well, look, you know, I've got this stand and here's my Bible verses and they've got their stand and they've got their perspective. They say, we should go take this to the authorities in Jerusalem. Let's go talk to the disciples and the church there. They were with Jesus. This is the best people to go to. I mean, who knows the heart of Jesus better than the guys that spent time with him? So let's take this back to the disciples. Let them pray about it. Let them look at the scriptures and let let them give us a decision on the matter. And there's a willingness to submit to authority. Um, It it reminds me of James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So if you think that you're wise, show it by example. Make sure that your actions are demonstrating that you have a heavenly wisdom. And it should be reflected in meekness. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, well, it's worth me stopping and asking myself, do I have bitter envy in my heart? Am I wanting something that God hasn't given me and has that made me bitter? That's bitter envy. Is there self-seeking? Is, it, is this really the motivation behind this? Is it really that I just want something for myself? It's not really what the Lord's plans or the Lord's purposes or anybody else. It's just self-seeking. If there's bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, James doesn't mince words. He says, don't boast and lie against the truth. It's like, don't lie to yourself. 
and call that wisdom. This wisdom doesn't descend from above. It's earthly, sensual, and demonic. There's a heavenly wisdom, and then there's an earthly, sensual, and demonic wisdom. And so he, and so he says, look, if, if this is coming from envy, if this is coming from self-seeking, then you want to call it wisdom, you can. It's just demonic wisdom. You know, and, and don't pretend like that wisdom came from God. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. You know, these, uh, these Judaizers would go, go on, that's what Paul would call them, these Judaizers. They're trying to Jewify everybody. Um, and, uh, and Paul, being someone who did this better than they did, he, f- he followed the law better than they did. He went down that path already. That's why one of the reasons why it was so hard for Paul. He said, I did this better than they did. I, I came to the end of that road. That road led me to Damascus. On the way there, I saw Jesus, and he showed me that it was a waste of my life and time. How am I going to waste my life trying to legally earn my relationship with the Lord? I did that already. I can't lay that weight on somebody else. You have to have a relationship with him. You have to know him. You have to talk to him. He has to talk to you. So how am I going to now go and make other people go down the same road that I went down just to burden them with this? And he, it would turn out, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he would say, they're just trying to draw people after themselves. By laying these heavy burdens on people, it cripples them. And now you need me, because I'll show you the right way of doing it. And now they're just drawing people after themselves. There's bitter envy. They're self-seeking. When these guys went from church to church, speaking to the churches that Paul spoke to, the, the Bible says that they were motivated by envy. Well, why are more people listening to Paul than to me? I, I think people should be listening to me more. And then they would create a dispute. They would create a contention. And so there was bitter envy and self-seeking in their hearts. But I love the fact that there is in this response a purity, a peaceableness, a gentleness, a willingness to yield. Isn't there so little of that sometimes in our contentions, in our arguments, in our discussions, a willingness to yield? Yeah, look, man, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I got I to gotta change course. I got to course correct. I, I, it can happen with me and probably because of how proud I can be that I'm making a point and I have a perspective and I've really done a great job fighting for my perspective. And then halfway through my discussion, I realize, oh, I'm wrong. I'm entirely, entirely wrong. I made a really good point, though, but I'm wrong. And then I have to decide, am I going to humble myself and say, you know what, I was wrong? Or am I going to double down on what I said? And fight even harder, because now I have to defend not only my wrong point, but also my pride, you know? And so if, if what it is that we're doing is a work of the Lord, then there should be a gentleness, a peaceableness, a willingness to yield. We should be full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I see that here in Paul and Barnabas by the decision being, guys, let's just go to the church in Jerusalem and talk to them. Let's show them both of the perspectives. Let them make the decision, and we're going to follow whatever decision is that the Lord puts on their hearts to to do. Verse 3. It says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, 
describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. I really love, I really love this verse. Um, I'd, I'd like to reference another verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, it says, Furthermore, this is Paul speaking, and I'll, I'll read it, and then I'll explain the context of it. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. That verse, what Paul is essentially saying is, I was in Troas, and there was a great work of God that was happening there. And there was a lot of opposition that was happening there. But I was unsettled in my spirit because I was worried about you Corinthians, and I had sent Titus for a word from you, and he hadn't gone back. So I left the work of God, and I left the battle there to go look for Titus because I cared about you so much. I wanted to know how you're doing. And as he looks at that situation, he doesn't say, what a waste. You should feel bad about the distraction that you caused to me to work in Troas. He doesn't do any of that. That's something that I would do, right? What he does is he says, but thanks be to God that through us, he diffuses the fragrance of Christ in every place that I go. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I went to go look for Titus, and as I went to go look for Titus, I represented Jesus in every place that I went to. As the distractions came up and I went trying to settle this unsettled thing in my heart, other people I ran into and I was Jesus, the fragrance of Christ to them. And if you work outside in the front yard or the backyard and you're mowing the lawn for a couple hours in this heat, you go inside, you're diffusing a whole different kind of fragrance. You know, it's, it's more of a stench, you know. But, but <clears throat> that's not the fragrance that he's talking about. I, there's, a, there's a brother in Christ that I love. And uh, they uh, have the gift of uh, great cologne, and they like to use it, you know, use that vigorously. And I, lo and I love them, and I love to go give them a hug, because then I just got free cologne for the rest of the day. It's awesome. It's cheap. And, um, and so, and, 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 you know, at one point a couple years ago, they generously gave, uh, gave me some hand-me-down shirts, and I was like, this is the best thing ever. I got free shirts, and I smell good. <clears throat> and... Um, so that kind of fragrance, when you walk into a room, what do you bring into that room? You know? When you walk into the room, is, the, is the, just the air lifted a little bit? What is that fragrance? What is that? What is that smell? The room has just been elevated by, by coming into the room. You know, sometimes I walk outside and I, somebody's barbecuing. I can smell it, you know? The cafe is going to be serving uh, uh, pork uh, tacos and they smoked it for 12 hours. So in a little while, that's going to be the main distraction you're going to have to be able to pay attention. But, but you, 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 oh, what, something's changed. The air of the room has changed. This is wonderful. But, or when I walk into a room, do I bring it down? You know, is it like a cloud has <laughs> occluded the sun? You know? Oh, you know, so Chris has walked into the room. Everybody's got to be careful, you know? What, what is the fragrance that I'm diffusing? And I love the fact that even though Paul is dealing with what would be an attack from the enemy and a distraction from the work, that he's still diffusing the fragrance of Christ with Barnabas everywhere he goes, all the way down to Jerusalem. He's telling them, oh, guys, you've got to hear what happened to the church in, in Lystra and Derby. 
they killed me, and I came back to life. And I went back inside, and I preached the gospel to them. There's a church thriving over there. And then when we were over in this area, we were over in that area, and these people got saved, and there's a lame man that walked again. God is doing incredible work there. And as the church heard about that all the way back down to Jerusalem, they rejoiced greatly. Oh, man, the Gentiles? I didn't see that coming. God saving the Gentiles? That's amazing. And, and, and so they're diffusing this beautiful fragrance of Christ to everyone that they run into. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them, to command them to keep the law of Moses. So a sect is someone who makes a choice that causes disunity. And um, they, you know, they had gotten saved out of uh, being Pharisees. And they still have a tendency to kind of view things through that light or through that lens of, of what they got saved out of, you know. And so then they say, well, yeah, well, you got to, these guys got to get circumcised. They got to follow all the laws or they're not even really saved. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up. Now, this is awesome. I love this. Peter uh, speaks up. God had prepared Peter for this work. That he, what he's going to do here. Um, in Acts chapter 10, Peter was on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. And as he's there and he's praying, um, he sees a sheet coming down from heaven. And in that sheet are all manner of unclean animals. And the, a voice from heaven, from God, says, kill and eat. And he says, no, no, no. The law of Moses says that I shouldn't eat this, and I've never eaten this. And isn't that sometimes the way with uh, when you're, the foundation of your relationship with God is based upon your efforts? I mean, there's no way you can keep all of it, but you have that one thing that you've always done well. And you're like, well, I've never eaten unclean animals. I've broken most of the other laws. When Jesus was in the boat with Peter, Jesus said to Peter, depart from me, for I am a sinner, and I don't deserve to be in your presence. He had it right. And he recognized he was a sinner. He messed up a lot. He failed the law and the commandments all the time. But I've never eaten unclean animals. And that's like the thing, you know, when you, when you have kind of a legalistic or pharisaical spirit, like I can have, it's, it's in me. Then I hold on to that one thing that I actually do fairly well. And I said, no, no, never. And the Lord chooses that thing to challenge Peter and say, kill and eat. He said, no, never. And he says, I cleansed it. You're going to call unclean what I've cleansed? And then it goes back up into heaven. And he gets another, cha another chance. It goes back up into heaven. goes another chance. So what the Lord has cleansed, don't let man call unclean. What the Lord has cleansed, don't let man call unclean. Then he gets a knock at the door, and it's Cornelius. His messengers came to bring him to Cornelius' house. Uh, a Gentile, a centurion, and while he's there, I, I love, you know, my carnality loves his grumpiness, you know. Look, I'm Jewish. I'm not even supposed to be here. But God said I had to come. So, you know, why am I here? Tell me, you know. And, and he's like, well, I, had, I saw an angel from God, and he said to call you because you're going to tell me what I need to know to be saved. You saw an angel, and you're a Gentile. From God? From my God? Wow, you know, and he starts telling them the gospel message, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them 
while he's preaching, before he's finished, before he gave the altar call. And he said, wow, God has accepted them. Nasty, pagan, Gentile them. He's forgiven them because they've put their faith in him. Wow. God has welcomed them into the body of Christ. This is, this is crazy. And so God had prepared Peter for this. Now Peter is there hearing this discussion, and he's going to, as they're arguing back and forth, he's going to stand up to speak. He says, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart and acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, has made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Isn't that something? God made no distinction between them and us because God purified their heart. As vile as their heart is, as vile as my heart is, God purified it through faith in Christ in the same way that he purified my heart in my crazy religious background, right? He forgave me from, from all the weight of all the things I was failing in because I put my faith in Christ. God forgave them of all the weight of all their paganism because they put their faith in Christ. And he made no distinction between the two of us. Therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which our fathers, nor we, are able to bear. Say, let's be honest with each other, Peter says. We haven't been able to bear this yoke. Now you're going to put that yoke on them? And we grew up in this. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I love that Peter reverses it here, he says, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I would expect Peter to say, I, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to be saved the same way we are. But that's not what he says. He's so filled with the Spirit, making his point. And so in the moment that he says, I think that by the grace of God, we might just get saved the same way they are. Isn't that something? That's awesome. By the grace of God, we might get saved by putting our faith in Jesus. And, 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 and in the same way that they have. And this is a word of wisdom from Peter. Then all the multitude, they kept silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. After they had become silent, then James answered. Now, this is not James, the brother of John. James, the brother of John, had been martyred. Uh, one of the early church, earliest church martyrs was, James, was that James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the letter, the, the book of the Bible, James, and uh, the half-brother of Jesus, same mom, different dad. And it would seem that at some point, uh, James had kind of risen to a place of, of leadership in the church, and he's kind of here making the decision, the, 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 the final judgment. He says, I judge thus. And because of this chapter and other places, we believe that he was kind of the, 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 the pastor in charge of the church there in Jerusalem making the final decision. It's also awesome that when James says these things, that James was, we believe from church history, that he was a very religious guy. I mean, when it came to being Jewish, he was extra super Jewish. Um, he was known as old camel knees because he would spend all of his time in the temple praying on his knees. And he was respected by even the Jewish uh, leaders in the temple because they thought, well, that guy's really super spiritual, you know? And so now he's going to step in 
And his word carries some measure of weight because everybody knows that he's devoted to the Lord. Everybody knows that these things are important to him. And he's going to say this. He said, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared. I'm sorry, side note here is I, I wonder if it semi-bugged Peter that James doesn't call him by his new name, Peter. Uh, you know, I don't know if James likes nicknames because he also calls Judas, who's nicknamed Barsabas, he calls him Judas. And I relate to that because there was a period in my life where I was like, I'm not calling anybody by their chosen nicknames. This is their birth name. Anyway, you can pray for my wife. She has to deal with me. But um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, James, I get that. I get that. Um, Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So he says, we've seen what God is doing. We have a history with the Lord. Look at what God did through Peter. And it's in agreement with the word of God. And that's important. Experiences are important. You should have a personal experience with God that is submitted to the authority of the scriptures, that is in concordance or in agreement with the authority of scripture. And that's what James is saying. Look, this is, this is hitting all the check marks. The Lord did a work through Peter. It's confirmed by Scripture. He says, with this, all the prophets agree. Just as it is written, he's going to quote from Amos, after this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And even in the verse that he chooses, that the Holy Spirit, I think, chooses to quote through James, it's a verse that first speaks about the fact that God isn't done with the Jewish people. God has a plan for God's chosen people, the Jewish people. I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. I'm going to rebuild the work that I'm doing. And I'm going to reach the Gentiles that all the world would know that I am Lord, that I'm God. And so... It's a, a wonderful verse for James to choose, for the Holy Spirit to choose, because the Holy Spirit brings it back to James's memory. And then he says in verse 18, he says, but known to God from eternity are all of his works. So James says this, we saw what happened through Peter. It is in concordance with what the scripture says. And guys, this has been God's plan from the beginning. From the very beginning, God has intended for this to take place. And this is what's known as the sovereignty of God. There are people that misunderstand the sovereignty of God, but it's a real thing. You could define the sovereignty of God as God rules over all and God overrules all for his purposes. And that brings a great comfort to me. I can be in a situation where I can look at my circumstances and be overwhelmed. I can look at my distractions and be overwhelmed. Why isn't this going this way? Why isn't it going that way? And I can forget that God is sovereign over those circumstances. God is in charge. He's had his plan from the beginning. And so the way that it works out in our lives is that I think, and this is, a, this is a, probably a, a bad uh, a paraphrase of a C.S. Lewis quote, um, it is a C.S. Lewis quote I'm paraphrasing. I think it's a bad paraphrase on my part because he says it better than I do anyway. But C.S. Lewis said, on our level, on our way of thinking, we see simple good and we see simple evil. There's simple good and simple evil. We can recognize that. But from God's perspective, in God's grace and overruling power, he has the ability to take simple evil if we surrender it to him 
if we trust him in it, if we walk in obedience to him in it. And he can transform that simple evil into a more complex good. And so now by the grace of God, we can have something that on its own would just be terrible. But God has redeemed it and restored it to make it an even better thing than it was before. Than it ever could have been before. And in this complex good produced from redeemed and restored challenges and difficulties and hardships, it glorifies God even more. And what's crazy is that sometimes God uses us as the instruments of that redemption. Where he says, I know you're going through this hardship. I know you're going through this difficulty. I know that you're recognizing this want or this need in your life. If you give it to me, and if you trust me, and if you walk in obedience to me, I can redeem it. I can restore it. I can make it an even greater thing than it would have been as a simple good. It would be a complex good, redeemed and glorified, and something that points to me even more. That's not to say that it's okay to take a light view of sin and to indulge in compromise. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? That expresses a complete, that attitude expresses a complete lack of relationship with Christ. Don't you realize he died for these things? You know? But if we take the things that are outside of our control or the things that maybe we've ruined and we bring it into the hands of the Lord, we're going to see something that known to God from eternity are all of his works. That somehow on the other side of this surrendered thing, God makes something glorious and wonderful out of it. And, and James says that. Known to God from eternity are all of his works. There's always been a part, this has always been a part of God's plan. He knew it from the beginning, even though we ourselves didn't know it. And even something as terrible as like a spiritual attack from Pharisees trying to destroy the joy of the church of Christ, Paul and Barnabas bring it to the Lord. God does something even greater out of it. And we, we keep reading here, Therefore, this is where we see uh, James's leadership. I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we would write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So, I mean, there's a part of us, I mean, there's a I'm probably in that group that might get challenged or stumbled by verse 20. Like, what do you mean? You know, except for these three things. And some of them I understand and agree with, and some of them I'm like, what do you mean things strangled? I don't think I eat strangled things, but that's weird. <clears throat> these uh, commendations on behalf of James and from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch and to the Gentiles at large are not about salvation. They're about integrating these Gentile believers with the Jewish church. So these Jews come from a religious background where if they bring their idolatrous paraphernalia, the things polluted by idols, which would basically be all the food they eat. I mean, if you were, a, uh, many of us are Gentiles, but if you were going into the supermarket and you see meat on sale, you know, in those days, very likely it was offered up to an idol. And then they, after they offered it to the idol, the leftovers, they put on sale. Oh, if, you're, if you're thrifty, you say, all right, some cheap you know, T-bone steaks, and you take it home and you cook it. But somebody from a Jewish background would say, have those been offered to idols? Oh, maybe. I don't know if, I, yeah, 
Oh, I can't eat that. I can't participate in idolatry. And whereas Paul would go to great lengths in the Corinthians to say, it's a, it's a rock, it's a stone, it, it, it's a statue. You know, things offered to idols is just cheap. Just, just take the food and don't ask questions about it. But if they tell you it's offered to an idol, don't eat it. Because clearly there's something in their conscience saying, should I feel bad about this? And then you want to you wanna be considerate of their conscience. So anyway, all of which being said, when James says this, he's saying, as you Gentiles are getting saved, abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, and abstain from eating things with the blood in it that have been strangled. Because if you bring that, you bring your, some, some of those things are directly sin and some of them are liberties. So if you bring that into the body of Christ, those, the Jews are just not going to, the Jews are going to be over here and the Gentiles are going to be hanging out over here, you know? Take your liberties and submit them to Christ and to your love for your fellow believer. And that's something that sometimes we can idolize is our liberties and our freedoms in Christ. So to the Jews, he would say, guys, you need to calm down. Uh, they just got saved. God's going to transform them and reform their life. They're going to surrender their life to Jesus and they're going to be purified. They're being sanctified by their relationship with Jesus. And then to the Gentiles, he would say, guys, you need to be considerate. I know you know that the idol's nothing, but it bothers them. So if, you know, the meat has been sacrificed to idols, just stop eating it. Be considerate of how this is going to affect the Jewish brothers in the body of Christ. How can I say that? Because in verse 29, when he summarizes these things in the letter, he says, if you do these things, you do well. It's not about salvation. It's about being considerate within the body of Christ. So I didn't just make that up. There's a Bible verse for it. But uh, he's encouraging them to be considerate of the Jewish people. All four requested abstentions related to ceremonial laws laid down in Leviticus 17 and 18. And three of them concern dietary matters which should inhibit Jewish-Gentile common meals. For Moses has throughout these many generations, verse 21, those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues in uh, every Sabbath. Here, essentially, James saying, because there's Jews everywhere. I mean, the Jewish people are in every one of those Gentile cities. So just be considerate, Gentiles, as you come into the church. Show love to your Jewish brothers. They might come from a religious background, and you might come from a heathen pagan background, but God wants you to be able to love Christ together and to learn to grow in the nature of Christ together. Verse 22, it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas. And as, a, as an aside, I always feel bad for the Judases after Judas Iscariot because they're all, they all try to be nicknamed, you know? Like, ah, you have the same name as Judas Iscariot. Can you just call me Jude? I'm Jude. Or here, Judas is called Barsabas, you know, so... Sometimes the name has a connotation of the people that lived before. And Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they wrote this letter by them. This is a letter that they wrote, apostles and elders and the brethren. To the brethren who are in, of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some went out from us who troubled you with words, unsettling your souls. These are the Judaizers. These are the Pharisees that came in the beginning. These troubled you with their words and unsettled your souls. Have you ever had somebody come and say a word that they say is from the Lord for you, but it doesn't edify you, encourage you, convict you, comfort you? Instead, it just troubles you and lays a heavy weight upon your soul. I mean, that might not be the Lord. 
I see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses, I think it's 2 and 3, that a word of prophecy is meant to exhort, to encourage, and to comfort. Even a convicting word is a healing and restorative word. God is trying to get us to repent and turn. And I'm like, oh, thank you, God, for getting rid of this in my life. It's never meant to beat down, to burden, to just make you miserable. And he said, these guys came and they beat down and burdened you and made you miserable. First of all, I'd like you to know that they did not come from us. Uh, they said, you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send to you chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And we're almost done, but I'd like to stop there. Because by the grace of God, you see a bad thing, right? An objectively bad thing. These guys came as an attack from the enemy to put out the fire of passion in the Gentile church going on in Antioch. But because Paul and Barnabas deal with it the right way, they bring it to the Lord, they bring it to the Word, they surrender it to God, God transforms it into a good thing over and over and over again. Would those churches all along the coastline from, some, from Antioch through Samaria down to Jerusalem have heard about the great work that the Lord had done in the Gentile church? Had it not been for this attack? No. Paul would have stayed in Antioch and just minded his own business and encouraged the church that was up there. But because Paul submitted this challenge to the Lord, this difficulty to God, this hardship, now other people are diffused, have among them diffused a fragrance of Christ. Now they go to the church, and the church there in Jerusalem sits down and codifies what's important, what's the foundational to our salvation, the letters that we're still reading today. Now we can walk away and say, oh man, it's, it's based upon faith. And then as that happens there, then they go back and bring that, this letter back to Antioch, and it encourages them, and it rejoices their hearts and spirit. And Judas and Silas are brought, because of the, the problem, they're brought up to Antioch, and they edify and encourage the church for a while there. And Silas is going to be uh, in position for the next work God has for him. You see the big picture of what God's doing? It's such a greater thing than what I would, than what I would do, than how I would see it. I would just look at it as, this is a big problem. Oh, these people, why do they got to come to this church? You know, not you guys. You guys are the best. But, you know, the church in Antioch with these legalists, you know, why? And, I, and this is not coming from, you know, there's a secret legalist problem. They're hiding amongst you. I'm not doing that. But I'm just, I'm, what I'm looking at is, look at how God can redeem a bad thing and make it a better thing. Look at how God can redeem an attack from the enemy. Look at how God can redeem a, 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 a painful thing and make it a better thing. And can we not trust the Lord? Can this knowledge that known from the Lord, nor to the Lord from eternity or all his works, can it not give us peace? 
Can I not make a case for us trusting God? Even amongst things that I can't, you know, justify legalists coming to Antioch. I'm not like, good, legalists came to Antioch. I'm not thinking that. But if they came, oh, man, God, you got quite a problem to solve. This is going to be awesome. I want to see how you can redeem this. I, I, I want to have that kind of heart, that kind of excitement, that kind of joy that expects God to do great and wonderful things. In verse 31, now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with their greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Simple word like that. God has a huge, huge plan for Silas. God's going to use Silas in the, in the church. How did he end up in position for that? Well, it seemed good to Silas to stay around for a little bit longer. Isn't that great, the sovereign power of God in that? And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now, after some days, Paul and Barnabas said, uh, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word to the, of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, this is a good thing. Paul says to Barnabas, you know, I have in my heart a deep concern for all the churches that we started. I wonder how they're doing. We should go back and check up on them to see if they're all right. And it's a great heart from Paul. Barnabas is really excited. He says, this sounds really awesome. Let's go. I mean, I can get a hold of John Mark. We can go, whoa, 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 John Mark? What are you talking about? That guy that departed from us when we were doing the missions trip the first time, you want to go get him? Yeah, yeah, we got to get John Mark. I mean, we can't leave him like, he, like we left him. We didn't leave him. He left us. I'm not taking with us someone who departed along the work, you know. And now you've got Paul and Barnabas, this dissension that was over here. Now it's a sharp contention between the two of them. And, you know, the Lord doesn't condemn one or the other because Barnabas has a heart that says, I love the people. I love the individual people. I can't leave John Mark in that state. I got to go find him and salvage him and bring him back for the work of the Lord. There's so much potential in John Mark. That's Barnabas's heart. That was his nickname. His name was Josie's, and his nickname was Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So he sees someone needing encouragement and saying, I'm going after him. I'm going to just, I'm going to just build that guy up. I can't, I can't let him go until he's fixed, you know? And that was the ministry and primary calling of Barnabas. And now you look at Paul, and Paul has this passion for the work of the Lord, this vision for that big picture of what God's wanting to do. And he says, how can I slow down? Look at how God is doing such a great and powerful thing. There's a movement of the Lord here. I need to run, and I need everyone with me to run. I'm not going to let John Mark, who, to me, he doesn't even look like he's decided yet what he's doing, slow down what it is that God is doing right now. And so then, are, who's right? I don't know. I think they're both right. Because I know that God is big enough that he cares about John Mark. And Barnabas is going to be effective in John Mark's life. By the end of Paul's ministry, Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, can you bring John Mark? I think he'd really be helpful to me right now. But God also validated the work and the heart that God had given Paul. Because, man, Paul goes from there and brings along Silas that happened to be sticking around and carries him with him to the work. Paul gets ministered to. Silas gets ministered to. They find Timothy, and Timothy becomes a part of the work. Luke becomes a part of the work after this second missionary journey. Paul's got a whole new team going on. And the work actually gets multiplied. 
because of this challenge, this dissension, this contention that was so sharp that they just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't work together. It's not, I mean, it's, it's a challenge to us. I, I love everyone, you know, happy bowls of roses and cherries and flowers all the time. Everything to be good. But God, in his grace and power and sovereignty, works through the difficulty. God, if we surrender it to him, if we trust him with the right attitude and heart, can make an even greater, a more wonderful thing through it. And that's what the Lord does. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, and being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and they went through Syria, Cilicia, and they strengthened the churches. So maybe there's challenges or difficulties in your life. Maybe it, it, it might feel like this is, this is, I mean, if God loved me, why would he allow these things to happen? Why the challenges? Why the hardship? Man, maybe the sovereignty of God wants to redeem it for an even greater good. And if you've been burdened or weighed down by kind of this oppressive cloud of, of hopelessness over your circumstances or situations, may the word of God part those clouds and see there's a God above it. There's a God above it that is not intimidated by how big the problem looks, how nasty and well-timed and well-aimed the attack from the enemy was. God is bigger than that. God can redeem it. God can restore it if we would trust him and if we would surrender it to him and if we would deal with it in a way that honors the Holy Spirit and puts the Lord and the Holy Spirit first and foremost. Well, we come into it saying, you know what? This is pretty bad. Aren't you worried, Chris? I'm not going to worry about it because God's in control. Well, that, that seems like you're apathetic and you're not really taking... No, no, no. I, listen, this is a big deal. But God is in control. God's going to carry us through this. Let's look at this and let's allow God to redeem the problem, to redeem the challenge. Let's see how God wants to use this for his glory because that's what I know God ultimately wants to do because known to the Lord from eternity are all of his works. So let's pray. The worship team can come up. Lord, I just thank you for your word, for your truth. Um, I thank you for how you appeal to us, Lord. You know our need. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to trust you, to look to you, to remain faithful. Um, I pray that, Lord, for, for no individual person here, that it would end in verse 1. That people came and laid an oppressive weight and everybody just gave up and listened to that instead of bringing it to the word of God, bringing it to the truth of God, subjecting it to the light of who you are, surrendering it to your plans and purposes, and diffusing Christ everywhere that we go. Lord, forgive us, Lord. I pray, Lord, if anyone here needs prayer, that they would come up for prayer. Um, Lord, that you would lift that load off of their shoulders and remind them of how great you are. And that maybe even today you'd begin the process of redeeming and restoring, uh, Lord, the hardship, the conflict, the attack for your glory. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, your truth, your goodness towards us, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.